man should fall who will lift the flag and carry on. Welcome everyone, welcome to another episode of the Act Protect Engage, known as Ape Academy Podcast. We are exploring the legendary 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment commanded by Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. This scene is from one of my favorite movies of all time, Glory. We're going to look into this film today, discuss it, break down the battle, talk about the historical context it's going to be great i hope everyone enjoys it especially you guys who love civil war history it's going to be a great episode hey Everybody, what's going on? It's your boy Chase H back with another amazing Black History Month podcast. We are discussing heroes of the African American culture, of the African American heritage. All right, today we're talking about some of my personal heroes, the 54th Infantry. I hope you enjoy it. Hey. Woo, the King is Dead. That song is called The King is Dead. From the Black Panther soundtrack, one of my favorite Marvel movies, Black Panther. If you guys have not seen that movie, you better go see it today. Plus, it's Black History Month, so you're obligated to watch it. All right. Once again, Ape Academy Podcast. We are here to celebrate history in general, to inform the masses, to spread our message of the importance of history and to bring history alive. We're also here to support and promulgate the Second Amendment, all right? But this month, we are focusing specifically on Black History. It's Black History Month. If you want to learn more about the history of the actual month itself, we did a podcast a few days ago about it, so check it out. It's a short podcast. It won't take long to go through. Okay, housekeeping as usual. The first thing we do 
is our housekeeping. I <laughs> I repeat this every single freaking time. Please turn on your post notification button. Turn it on so you know when new episodes are streaming, when they are available. If, for instance, you are watching The Real Housewives of New Jersey and you hear, bing, new Ape Academy episode is now streaming, you now know there's some new content out. All right, so you can stop what you're doing and you can tune in. All right, also, please follow us on all social media platforms. We are on Instagram at Ape Academy. We have two accounts. So the main account, the non-podcast account, is Ape Academy. And the podcast account is at Ape Academy Podcast. Also, we're on Twitter at A underscore defensive, Facebook, Ape Defensive Solutions, TikTok, which no one cares, uh, seems to care about. We're still going to promote it, Ape Academy Pod. Also, if you could please follow rate us and if you have a few extra minutes write a review because guess what i read all of them and i really appreciate them and that's how i know how to get better and provide better content for the masses shout out and a big thank you goes to all of our domestic and international listeners as we always do you guys are the reason that we do this we love you thank you for the support all right that was long it's all over now, all the uh, admin stuff, so we're going to talk about the nitty-gritty. This one might be a long one. I am a Civil War uh, fanatic. Uh, I think it's probably one of the greatest periods of American history. It's one of the darkest periods, but it is also one of the periods that really shows the fighting spirit of Americans. Now, unfortunately, we're fighting each other, and we're fighting over a crucial series of issues which we won't go into right now but we're gonna you know touch on it a little bit throughout this podcast all right so first things first that movie that scene was from glory and it is the kind of opening stanza of the scene that portrays the battle of fort wagner all right fort wagner south carolina that is where the 54th really was thrust into prominence and uh, they really kind of made their legend at this crucial battle, all right? So we're going to discuss the importance of the 54th. They might be the most important African-American infantry unit of all time. All right, so today's episode is called The 54th. We got a few sources, as usual. The American Battlefield Trust Glory at Fort Wagner, the 54th Massachusetts, strikes a key blow against slavery, written by Dr. Philip Thomas Tucker, Ph.D. All right, the first part we're going to go over is we're going to dissect Glory the movie <laughs> versus actual fact. So fact versus fiction. I call this segment the myth destroyer. Now, first things first, guys. Before anyone of you jump down my throat, I love the movie. I think it's freaking amazing. It's one of my favorite movies. And it might be the best Civil War era movie of all time. It might be one of the top war movies internationally of all time. But we have to remember, every time we analyze something based on history, that Hollywood has a very, very specific goal when they make these movies there's always a slight uh twist hollywood twist 
two movies, even historical ones. So we're going to talk about this right now. It does not diminish the power of the movie. Our analysis does not invalidate the importance of the movie. All it's doing is trying to highlight a few things that did not match up or did match up with history. Okay? So no, any snowflakes out there, do not take this part personally, please. Okay? No offense. All right, so first things first, Glory was released in 1989, okay? So late 80s, early 90s. The Oscar-winning film is by far one of the best, if not the best, war films ever produced. I think pretty much everyone out there who's seen it or knows anything about movies will, will acknowledge this point. The film was directed by Edward Zwick. Zwick? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Let's say Edward Z. And <laughs> was certainly the best film depicting the Civil War. We, are, we just spoke about that. For such reasons, Glory was nominated for five Oscars and won three of them. Glory was the first film that focused slow, solely on black wartime heroics. And it brought the dramatic story of the North's first black regiment vividly to life. So this is the first of its kind. No film before this really talked about black soldiers and focused on them. During the, due to the popularity of this film, the 54th is viewed as, quote, the glory regiment by the American public because of its famous assault on Fort Wagner, which is depicted epically in this movie, at the end of this movie. However, there's some irony involved in this, all right? There's <laughs> it's definitely a lot of irony. Ironically... If you think about it, now now sit back, let's put on our thinking caps. If you actually think about it, even though this was really one of the first films ever devoted to the many challenges faced by America's first black regiment from the North, it was actually presented almost solely from a white viewpoint. Really think about it, though. It really should have been from the perspective of Morgan Freeman's character if they really wanted to talk about the soldiers, the grunts, the knuckle draggers, the infantrymen themselves, the actual nitty gritty meat of the unit, it really should have been from Denzel's character's perspective or from Morgan Freeman's character's perspective. If they really wanted to discuss the nitty gritty of the 54th and really dive into it. First, right, first point is it was from the perspective of members of the leading white abolitionist movement and second it was seen the movie was seen from the film's protagonist and almost messianic figure Colonel Robert Gould Shaw now he was an amazing man but he wasn't quite what he was depicted Dr. Tucker and I and he's the author of my second source we both agree that the film could have been even deeper and even more impactful if it didn't focus solely on Colonel Shaw. And they did this, they really did this at the expense of the common grunts. I call them the knuckle draggers. And that's not a racial slur against black folks. That's what we infantrymen call ourselves. The grunts, the knuckle draggers, right? The guys who do the fighting on the front lines. I.e. the infantrymen. Dr. Tucker in his book writes, quote, the fact that an award-winning film about black soldiers, including more 
than 280 men, more than two-thirds of the regiment, who became casualties during the assault on Fort Wagner, focused primarily of the trials and tribulations of an uh, aristocratic blue blood from a wealthy Boston family. This was the film's ultimate irony. <laughs> that is pretty ironic. I also believe that the film did not give appropriate acknowledgement of the free black viewpoints of lower class and middle class blacks from across the north and the former slaves from the south that made up the meat of the regiment that really filled out the regiment it didn't tell a lot now they did have the character of thomas but even that character was super stereotypical like the only free person in the regiment was thomas who spoke like a white man looked like you know acted like a white man and tried to you know fit in with uh as he called him robert his friend from childhood that's not really what most black freemen were like that's not what if you think a black freeman in the north at the time was like thomas you are mistaken however the direction they did do a really good job of stopping the film literally at the point where it needed to begin right? <laughs> the directors they did a great job at stopping the film at the perfect moment for ultimate hollywood dramatic effect so they really stopped the film right when we're at like the height of the 54th glory. Like, like if you would watch this movie and you didn't know anything about history, and you didn't study it, you would think that the 54th was completely annihilated, wiped out, and that that was it. The 54th is over. The service ended. They got annihilated on a sad tearjerker, and it really wasn't like that. The movie simply ignored the regiment's outstanding distinguished service from August of, of 1860, not 19, 1863, all the way until the war's end in 1865. So they completely ignored that period. It was like after Fort Wagner, the 54th didn't exist anymore. The focus on only the first few months of the, of the regiment, which was the formative months, and then fast forward to the intense focus on the battle at Fort Wagner, it, it would leave the less informed viewer to believe, right, and it's no fault of their own, that the 54th service didn't continue after the battle. Like, that was it. Like, only thing they focused on was the formative months, the training, the attempt to get these raw recruits ready to fight. They fast forward for, like, they just fast forward, hit the freaking fast forward button with two fingers, and it it just skips ahead to the Battle of Fort Wagner. There's a small skirmish on James Island that they also talk about and a raid that we're gonna talk about later, but that's pretty much it. They fast forward to the climax. Even more noticeable to the even lukewarm average historian is the film's intentional messaging that the regiment's rank and file soldiers consisted of mostly former slaves from the South. This is not true at all. Not true. The regiment was primarily composed of free blacks from across the North. They filled the ranks of the 54th Massachusetts. Most of the soldiers were free Northern black folks, heavily recruited 
by the great Frederick Douglass himself, and most were not from Boston. Even though Boston was by far the most populous city in New England at the time, and still is. So, even though Boston was the center of New England, even though the film's uh, opening scenes depicted life you know, in Boston with the rich families, which was, which was pretty accurate, with the abolitionists, you would think if you watched the movie and you didn't really know a whole lot that all the soldiers kind of kind of either came from Boston or they were just slaves. And it's like they just skipped forward and didn't even talk about the recruitment at all. It actually took a lot of recruiting to get these folks to sign up because they were pretty, you know, pretty wary of signing up. They didn't really trust uh, the intentions of the Union government at first. All right. So not many were from Boston. In fact, let's talk about facts now. In fact, <laughs> the entire free black population of Massachusetts consisted of less than 2,000 men of military age in 1960, or in 1860, I'm sorry, 1860. The percentage of men in the regiment from Massachusetts was only 13% when the unit was organized in early 1863. Fun fact, the old whaling port of New Bedford Massachusetts, any of my New Englanders probably heard of this town, they provided more recruits than Boston. And this is because the town became a whaling hub. And since a lot of industry in whaling came through that town, there were a lot of good paying jobs, there was steady work, and there was even a sense of equality in treatment that was rarely found anywhere else. Also, an act, an very, very active anti-slavery community had sprung up in New Bedford in 1834. New Bedford's volunteers of C Company were known as the elite within the 54th. Really interesting. I loved I love that because it's like you don't really learn about these small details just by watching a film. The world is watching. The 54th Massachusetts was one of the first U.S. military regiments comprised entirely of black soldiers. Of course, it was commanded by white officers. They were the first in the Union Army and one of the first during the entire Civil War. Following Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, states were officially given permission to form all black regiments. Being the heart of the abolitionist movement, Massachusetts was the first state to begin the formation of the newly authorized black unit. Governor Andrew A. or John A. Andrew, I'm sorry, made a public call for good, courageous men to lead his new experimental unit. He needed leaders who were, quote, young men of military experience of firm anti-slavery principles, ambitious, superior to a vulgar contempt for color, and have faith in the capacity of colored men for military service. Governor Andrew was a rabid anti-slavery activist. He really stuck his neck on the line. He put his neck on the line. He stuck his neck out there to make sure that it was known that black soldiers can fight, they're brave, and they will stand up to tyranny when given the opportunity. 
he he really staked his reputation on the performance of the 54th. It was very risky, and I commend the man for really sacrificing a lot for the cause. This inspirational call to, to action drew more abolitionists for the 54th and her sister regiment, the 55th, than any other military unit in the Union Army. The creation and subsequent performance of the 54th Massachusetts was closely observed by the public and politicians within the Union. Everyone was watching, right? The eyes of the world were on the 54th because this was this first experiment in American history of gathering blacks from all regions in the North together, instilling discipline, and having them fight for the United States. Before, this had never happened. And that's hard to believe, right? You would think, man, wouldn't they be fighting in like the Mexican War and all that? No, there was a small black unit that fought under George Washington. But remember, America wasn't a nation yet back then. They were rebels, right? So this was the first official organized black infantry unit in the federal government, i.e., the Union. At the time, the 54th was seen as an experiment to prove the worthiness of black soldiers in battle. In fact, the formation of the 54th had such political significance and possible political fallout, the governor himself, Governor Andrew, personally, like I just spoke about, led the effort to recruit talented officers and attract able-bodied freemen mainly in the north the war was viewed as a white man's war and a lot of people believe that the newly freed slaves should not serve in any fighting roles whatsoever so even though the north was fighting a war against the confederates it really wasn't until the emancipation proclamation that the morality of of this, the anti-slavery fight really became prominent in Northern minds, right? In the beginning, up until this point, up until around 1863, the North was getting their ass kicked a lot. Like the Confederates were whooping that ass. I'm telling you, it was bad. And um, I think one of the reasons for that, and this is just my personal opinion, was there was a lack of, there was a lack of energy in the unions fighting there wasn't any real moral moral uh compulsion no moral motivation unlike the confederates who were they were super motivated because they believed in something right they were fighting for quote their way of life so the union army the union forces did not really have that same passion right they were fighting because the slaves or the slaves the south wanted to keep their n-words and uh, the North could not let them break up because it would destroy the America. So that's why they were fighting. They needed a moral mission. And the Emancipation Proclamation really gave a lot of passionate anti-slavery folks in the North a, a real strong reason to fight even harder. And it also allowed governors like Governor Andrew and, and great men like Frederick Douglass the, the, the ammo to really go on a a widespread recruiting campaign and that's what happened ran over 
<laughs> the naysayers, the haters, as we call them now, they claim that African Americans would lack discipline. They would not make good, dependable soldiers. They believed that black folks at the earliest opportunity would cut and run. As soon as they they hit some stiff resistance from the Confederates, they would break. They would be shattered. That they couldn't take the pressure of battle. I don't know what they based this on. Just general racism and ignorance, most likely. In time, these false perceptions would be absolutely annihilated. They would be shattered. The commander that was chosen for this monumental task was Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. We're going to talk about him a little bit. Although, although guys, hold on, hold on. I know it's Black History Month, and this was a white man. But we got to talk about him a little bit because he was a critical, a real crucial piece of this whole story. Governor Shaw and Boston's small but very influential abolitionist community, they faced a few major problems. The first and the biggest problem was that Massachusetts, they really only had a small number of free blacks, and most of these were outside of Boston, okay? So recruiting was a problem. There weren't that many black folks in Massachusetts, and the regiment was called the 54th Massachusetts, so they really had to recruit from other places, from other areas. There was only one solution, and that was a, a wide-ranging campaign to recruit free blacks from all across the North. It was widely acknowledged that Frederick Douglass was the, quote, true moral and spiritual godfather of this new regiment. Douglass was the very essence and spiritual father of the new command of dark-hued men who fairly lusted to play their part in slavery's destruction. No man, I don't care what any historian says, if they, if, if they call themselves an expert in this time period, and they say that someone lobbied harder than Frederick Douglass for the creation of an all-black unit, they're lying and they're quacks, all right? No man in America had lobbied harder for the authorization and employment of large number of black infantrymen than Mr. Frederick Douglass. Douglass was aware that the North was growing weary of getting their butts kicked, of the high casualty rate among their armies, and pushed hard for an influx of black soldiers that could help defeat the Confederacy once and for all. Douglas saw black units as the only way the North could save the Union. Douglas believed that, quote, a war undertaken and brazenly carried on for the perpetual enslavement of colored men caused logically and loudly for colored men to help press it. I.e., if this war is supposed to be about freedom and morality, and the destruction of slavery, then we better make sure that black folks, that we include them. They deserve the fight. And in fact, most, most likely they will be some of the best soldiers in your army. You'll see. Douglas himself had endured a bleak, hopeless existence as a lowly field slave on an eastern shore plantation, eastern shore, Maryland, nearly sm they're in the small community of Hillsborough, in Talbot County. All right, so that was quite a tongue twister. He basically was a slave on a plantation in the Eastern Shore, which is, if anyone is from Maryland, that is the real swampy coastal area of Maryland. 
Douglas had an intense, intense, in all caps I wrote, intense hatred of slavery whose limits had no bounds. He hated it more than anything in the world. Douglas used his powerful influence as America's most famous abolitionist to secure as many men as he could for the ranks of the 54th. It was really important that he go out there personally and make sure that people saw his face as the face of the union. Don't join for them. Join for me. I am the man behind this mission. If they saw a white face and all they saw were a bunch of white folks coming into their community and saying, hey, join up, join up, they would be like, ah, I don't know. But the fact that Frederick Douglass went out there, put himself on the line, put his reputation on the line, a lot like Governor Andrew, that really helped the cause. Douglas helped the Union focus on a new strategy. This is a brand new strategy. He believed that the war could only be won if the North's strategic objectives changed because their strategy was not working. I mean, man, they were terrible. They needed to focus on destroying slavery to free up manpower for the Union Army. And also, this would cripple the Confederacy's vital support system. So remember, the Confederacy still had slaves, right? They still had people enslaved. So if we free the slave, if we focus on destroying slavery, what that does is that opens up a whole new pool of motivated, dedicated, fierce manpower. Because these people are angry. They want to fight. And we can, if we can utilize them, if we can train them properly and get them some discipline, they can become a very effective weapon against the Confederacy, and that's exactly what happened. This strategy would also give the Union a powerful moral, in all caps, moral cause to shoot some new energy into the Union war effort. All right, so let's sum that up. Basically, Frederick Douglass knew that if the North fought the way they had been fighting this entire time, defeat was almost certain. The South had all the advantages when it came to troops. Man, mano v mano. Mano v mano. The Confederate soldier was superior to the Union soldier. Even though the Confederate soldier had less money, less equipment, they had more morale, they had more fighting spirit, they had more motivation, they fought for something. And at the time, the average Union soldier didn't even know why he was even there. Like He was like, wait, wait. Who, what is going on? Why, why are we doing this? So the Emancipation Proclamation and the fight against slavery would bring that moral component, right? That moral motivation that would really, really help. All right, guys, we're going to do a quick break, all right? Quick break, musical interlude, like we always do. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I learn just as much as you do when I do my research. All right, see in the flash. Ape. Gotta go get it. My name gon' hold up. My team gon' hold up. My name gon' hold up. My team gon' hold up. My shots gon' fire. My team gon' roll up. Menage twice. My queen gon' roll up. I hope y'all ready. You know I'm ready. I rain all day. You know confetti. I gotta go get it. 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 Miss me with that bush. You're not a gang member. You're a tourist. I be blacking out. I be blacking out. Bought a 83 cutlass for the weekend. I got a hundred thousand and I freaked it. I made my hundred thousand and I freaked it. I put a rose rice on my wrist, oh yeah. Cause baby mama tryna sneak this. I took a 
Yeah, alright. I love these musical interludes. Alright guys, we're back, we're back, we're back, we're back. Music is fire, but we cannot listen to the Black Panther soundtrack the entire time. Time to get back to business. Alright, so we're talking about recruitment now. Remember, we talked about everything leading up to the 54th being developed. Now we're going to talk about recruitment. Contrary to popular belief, perpetuated partially by the movie Glory, most of the new recruits did not come from Boston and were not newly escaped slaves. I know, I'm sorry for bursting people's bubbles. It just wasn't like that. Boston supplied less than 30 recruits, and most of them were free blacks. The much smaller whaling community of New Bedford, Massachusetts, produced 39. That makes no sense. That, that's ridiculous. Pennsylvania, my home state, they led the way in supplying the most recruits, nearly 300 men to the new regiment. And, this, and they were closely followed by New York and Ohio. Even though providing less troops than Massachusetts, Michigan, Illinois, and Indiana, and Indiana respectively, they contributed their fair share of men to the 54th also. In fact, Michigan had a pretty sizable free black population. The Underground Railroad had led north to cities like Detroit because cities like Detroit were right near the Canadian border. So if you, you know, took the Underground Railroad and you made it up to Detroit, you could either settle in Detroit since you were, you were already free. Well, you weren't free, but you were free of the South. And if you really wanted to, you could cross into Canada and they're not going to pursue you into Canada. In total, more than 200 black Michigan men served in the 54th. The 54th was a really diverse regiment, actually. Not only based on state citizenship, but also international citizenship. All right? Canadians, Mexicans, blacks born in Mexico, and people from the West Indies also served in the ranks. Also, there's a, a captain, Captain Emilio. He was the son of a prominent Hispanic musician and school teacher from Boston, Massachusetts. He was a captain, and he was actually Mexican. <laughs> well, no, his dad was Spanish. He was, he was from Spain. He was from Hispanic heritage, all right? He wasn't Mexican. That's me living in Texas. I'm not racist. Right, anyway, uh, Captain Emilio, he, his father was a uh, prominent Spanish citizen who taught music, taught the violin, and he was a captain. He was um, an inf influential leader in the regiment. All right. Many families and friends even joined together. Fathers and sons served side by side in the regiment. Douglas, not only did he speak these beautiful, eloquent words, he also backed up his words with decisive and brave sacrifices. He allowed his two beloved sons, teenager Charles Raymond Douglas and Louis H. Douglas, age 22, to join the regiment. Recognizing dazzling charisma when he saw it and solid leadership ability, Colonel Shaw, he promoted Lewis to the rank of Sergeant Major. That's crazy. This prestigious appointment made young Lewis Douglas the regiment's senior NCO. This was the highest rank available to a black man in the U.S. military at the time, was Sergeant Major. That's incredible. To join as a private and be such a good leader that you're promoted to sergeant major. And I'm pretty sure I read 
that Morgan Freeman's character is loosely based on Frederick Douglass's son, Lewis. Although Lewis was not a slave, he was free, and he was much younger than Morgan Freeman. He was only 22 at the time. Uh, you know, the sergeant major who's a great leader who fights from the front, that is Frederick or Lewis Douglas. He did not die, though. He was wounded, but he did not die in the battle of Fort Wagner. All right, let's talk about Colonel Shaw. Despite his depiction in the 1989 film Glory, Shaw was at best a reluctant leader of the 54th. At the time, in 1863, Shaw was only 25 years old, so he was still a young man. And even though he was only 25, he was a grizzled veteran of several major battles. In fact, Shaw had been wounded previously at the Battle of Antietam. He was also hesitant to leave his friends in the 2nd Massachusetts Regiment. Four, he didn't want to leave because service in a regiment that many doubted would ever see any serious action or any at all was not good for his career. Shaw was born into a prominent abolitionist family in 1837, but did not share his parents' passion for freeing the slaves. At best, he was ambivalent about black rights. As a young man, he spent several years studying and traveling in Europe before attending Harvard University from 1856 to 1859. Un unsure what he wanted to do with his life, like most young kids, Shaw dropped out before finishing his studies. When war broke out in 1861, Shaw seemed to suddenly find his purpose and immediately enlisted in the 7th New York Infantry. In May of that same year, Shaw joined, he transferred to 2nd Massachusetts as a second lieutenant, serving for two years and attaining the rank of captain. Governor John A. Andrews, he was paying attention, governor of Massachusetts. He also knew his family. He recruited Shaw in March of 1863 to raise and command one of the first regiments of African-American troops. And that is that early scene. Remember, if you guys have seen the Maury, uh, the, Maury the movie Glory, remember that beginning scene where they're at that fancy dinner party with the governor, Frederick Douglass, which is kind of weird how he had like a shadowy presence. Like Frederick Douglass, if it was based on fact, he should have been the one talking to Shaw. He should have been the main focus of that scene. Uh, but yeah, uh, Governor Andrew, he personally recruited Colonel Shaw. At first, Shaw accepted the assignment only to please his mother, <laughs> like many of us do, right? We would just want to please our mamas. However, the men quickly earned his respect. He eventually grew to believe that they could fight as well or better than any white unit in the Union Army. When he learned that black soldiers received less pay than whites, he personally led a boycott of all wages, including his own, until the situation was resolved. Remember that scene where he tears up the, the pay slips and everyone else tears it up? That's what we're talking about. As a veteran officer who had suffered through the horrors of combat in the Eastern Theater, Colonel, Colonel Shaw went above and beyond to instill very strict, West Point-like, almost Spartan discipline during the weeks of rigorous training leading up to their deployment. He knew that the world was watching, and he also knew that these men would need as much discipline and intensive training as possible to confront and then overcome 
the challenges ahead of them on the front lines when they fought the Rebs. Let's talk about the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation because this cannot be understated. As the war continued with no end in sight and as the casualties grew, the defeats grew and northern impatience grew, the employment of black troops in the war effort was really just a matter of time. Following the strategic draw at the Battle of Sharpsburg, Virginia, where both armies took a vicious beating, President Lincoln took bold action. He knew this was his moment. This was the first battle that the Union didn't get completely whooped in. So he was like, okay, we, we didn't lose, but we didn't win. So now's my time. Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Okay. The Northern war effort was immediately transformed into a moral struggle for the soul of the country. Eventually, the North would recruit more than 200,000 black soldiers. This was a key turning point in the war. Key turning point, all right? Let's fast forward to 1863, and we're going to talk about why South Carolina was important. Why was Fort Wagner so important? And there's a few reasons. One being, South Carolina was the cradle of the Confederacy. On May 28, 1863, Colonel Shaw deemed that his men were ready to deploy for the front lines. The 54th marched through Boston with a crowd of 20,000 cheering them on. Remember that scene where they were marching and the crowd was like, yeah, woo! It's like all the like inspirational music showing like the little like interracial babies like with flags. Yeah, that was <laughs> that's the scene I'm talking about. The 54th formed at the perfect time for them to see some serious combat because in early of June, in early of June, in early June 1863, Union planners wanted to capture the key port of Charleston, South Carolina. The city of Charleston was one of the best defended ports in the entire Confederacy. Charleston was the birthplace of secession and the birthplace of the rebellion itself. South Carolina was the first state to break away from the Union. The 54th arrived in South Carolina under the overall command of Colonel James Montgomery. Kind of a sleazebag. Montgomery, an Ohio native, commanded the 2nd South Carolina Volunteer Infantry, which was another black unit taken from the newly freed population of the area, and it was also commanded by white officers. Shaw and Montgomery led a raid on the small town of Darien, Georgia, during which Montgomery ordered the 2nd Carolina, along with the 54th Mass, to loot the town and then set it on fire. Remember that scene where they're looting the town? And he, he, uh, he tells them, he commands Colonel Shaw's unit to uh, torch it. And Shaw goes, I, I don't want to do that order. I will not. He said, you will unless you want to get court-martialed. And then he calls his soldiers just little monkey children who need to be controlled. This is the scene. This is the battle. So, not battle. It's a raid. Um... Uh, Shaw did not want to carry out this order, but Colonel Montgomery threatened him with a court-martial. Although they were the same rank, Colonel Shaw's unit fell under his overall command because he was more senior. Two months later, on July 16, 1863, the regiment's first major engagement of the war took place. Ooh. 
the Battle of Grimwall's Landing. You guys remember that battle? <laughs> I love that scene. The Battle of Grimwall's Landing when uh, they had a skirmish with the Confederates. Remember that? That was a great battle. I love that battle. Let's do a quick scene from it. Alright, so they're getting in line. So infantry fought in in formation in rows, in lines. There's usually a first row of, of riflemen. They would fire in volleys depending on the row. One row would kneel, would fire, and kneel, the second row would then fire. Alright, so this skirmish really, really boosted their morale. Uh, the scene is much longer, but we don't have time to watch the whole thing. It's pretty awesome, though. If you haven't seen Glory, please check it out. It's a great movie. I love it. It's one of my favorites. So, the Battle of Grimball's Landing occurred on James Island, outside of Charleston, South Carolina, and it really gave the 54th a chance to prove themselves in battle. The 54th successfully stopped a Confederate advance that was meant to crush retreating troops from the 10th Connecticut Infantry Regiment. The 54th repeatedly re repelled the Confederate charges, inflicting heavy losses on the enemy and allowing the 10th Connecticut to withdraw from the area safely. After the smoke settled, the 54th only had 43 casualties while the rebels were repulsed and forced to retreat with heavy casualties. Great kind of, uh, great introduction to battle for them. It was perfect that they kind of started off with small battles because if they were thrown straight into a huge battle, it would not have gone well for them. So it's good that they got a, a small taste of combat, although Fort Wagner was a massive challenge, even for veteran troops. And guess what? We're about to talk about it. Proving ground. James Island and Fort Wagner. Following the battle on James Island, the morale of the 54th was at its freaking height. They were happy. They were ready. The men had finally proved themselves in battle, and the anticipation for the next battle was really, really high. Just two days later, on July 18, 1863, the 54th was in the vanguard of the assault on Fort Wagner, a stout fort that overlooked Charleston Harbor. The battle was the bloodiest engagement that the 54th had been engaged in. A total of 270 casualties were suffered by the 54th out of 600 men. That's almost half. Look, I'm not going to lie to you guys. To be blunt, the assault on Fort Wagner was pure suicide. It was an idiotic strategy devised by the Union commanding staff. All previous units who had attempted to attack the fort had been badly bloodied. Conquering the enemy will require a full-scale frontal assault. So what happened? 
After a sustained naval bombardment, which did almost nothing, almost no damage, the 54th advanced at sunset to prepare for a frontal assault. Captain Louis Emilio, who I talked about earlier, if you guys remember, commanding Company E in the battalion posed directly behind Shaw's lead battalion, he described the dramatic moment that the regimental members would never forget. Quote, Colonel Shaw walked along the front of the center and giving the command, attention, the men sprung to their feet. <laughs> that was a good one, wasn't it? Then came the, the orders, move in quick time until within a hundred yards of the fort, then double quick and charge. With these commands, Colonel Shaw marched his 600 troops into two assault columns, two separate wings. He commanded the northernmost battalion, while the battalion immediately behind him was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Edward Needles, quote, Ned Hollowell, who had been raised in a nice household of his wealthy abolitionist family of Quakers on Wall Street in Manhattan, New York City. So, remember uh, Robert's friend, Colonel Shaw's friend in the movie? That is who we're talking about, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Hollowell. He was from Manhattan. He was a Quaker. Going for broke. Going for broke, y'all. With fixed bayonets, the men of the 1st Battalion advanced in double rank formation based on the tactical concept that was intended to increase the shock effect of the charge. So... The idiotic powers that be figured, hey, look, if we march with fixed bayonets and two assault columns back to back, right next to each other, what will what will happen is we'll hit them with a one-two, like a like a left-right combination, one-two punch, where the first wave will hit, and then the second wave will overlap and follow right behind them. So it's like a one-two, a left-right punch. Demonstrating their high spirits in response to the colonel's orders, the 54th. The 54th unleashed a resounding cheer, huzzah, that echoed across the sandy beach with a determination that cold steel would win the day. Colonel Shaw valiantly led from the front, inspiring his soldiers to join him inside of the fort. Meanwhile, the beating of drums and the blaring of trumpets alerted the tough, defending North Carolina rebel infantrymen who were hiding in bomb-proof uh, bomb shelters. These bomb-proof shelters were erected to protect them from the naval bombardment that was supposed to reduce the fort. So, just like anything else, we teach in basic infantry tactics, basic fighting tactics, what you want is support by fire. Support by fire were the naval gunships that were supposed to fire on the fort from the harbor, which was supposed to reduce the fighting capability the fighting capacity of the enemy it really did absolutely nothing because the rebels were ready for that they had bomb proof shelters that could deflect the artillery of the union gunboats so they were pretty much unscathed from the bombardment at the double quick and with whooping war cries and cheering hundreds of motivated rebels from the 31st 51st and 60 and 61st North Carolina infantry regiments poured out from their shelters like a swarm of angry hornets from a disturbed nest. Now, let's talk about the strategy behind this suicidal assault. Basically, the, the Union leadership, they should have known better. 
right? This was obvious. Brigadier General George Crockett Strong, he believed that the nighttime assault could easily succeed, and it was an overly optimistic plan, to say the least. Since July 11th, attacks on Fort Wagner had failed, but the leadership was convinced, they were convinced, that the rebels should not be expecting a frontal assault at this time of day, which was after the sun had set. So why would they think that the rebels just wouldn't always be ready? I don't know. Oh, you know, it's nighttime, so uh, they're probably drunk and asleep. No. They're, they're well trained. They're probably better trained than most of your army, not the 54th, though. Of course, as with most incompetent military leadership, the command had underestimated not only the enemy's combat capabilities, but also their numbers. They were off by more than a thousand. They thought the Confederates had a thousand less troops than they actually did. The guns at Fort Wagner, they were protected on the right by Vincent's Creek and on the left by the Atlantic Ocean. So the strategy was what, what the Union generals thought would happen. They thought that with the bombardment from their artillery and their gunboats, this would knock out some of the big guns of the fort. This would reduce the capacities of the fort's guns, right? They were aiming directly at the guns and at the, uh, and at the ramparts. But little did they know that the Confederates had already thought about this. And they positioned their guns in a way that their natural terrain protected them from the bombardment from the gunboats. So they were ready. The approaching mass of tightly packed Union troops was the perfect target because they were completely exposed on the lower ground of the open beach. In planning the risky attack, the command had seemed to either totally forget or underestimate the defender's huge advantage due to the natural terrain of the area. Confederate engineers had created choke points, aka death traps, in the approach to the fort. Despite graduating first in his class at West Point, I don't know how he did that, General Gilmore, to put it bluntly, was in over his head. Despite his previous success in capturing Fort Pulaski earlier in the war, he seemed to have completely forgotten the basic tenets of military tactics and strategy. As the 54th entered the bottlenecks, Confederate art artillery roared to life, smashing large holes in the ranks. To make things even worse, Union artillery continued to fire. You don't keep firing when your troops are entering. Yo, okay. I was in the army for six years. Basic tactics. You have a support by fire. What you do is you focus your machine guns, at least on the infantry, you uh, focus your big guns, which are your machine guns, to diminish your enemy. You figure out where the position is, and as your, your units approach, you fire. Now, there's going to be a line of departure. So once they hit a certain point, which you have a, a check, it's called a checkpoint. Once you hit a certain checkpoint, you shift your fire away from where your troops are going to be. Else, you're going to kill your own men. So what happened were was the Union artillery continued to fire even though the 54th were now crossing into their kill zone. So not only were the Confederate guns killing the 54th, the Union guns were killing the 54th. A classic blue-on-blue -blue situation. My goodness. The 54th were trapped between two fields of fire. When the 54th was within 100 yards of the, of the fort... Confederate forces were ordered to fire. In a letter, 
Sergeant Major Lewis Douglas, which we talked about, Frederick Douglass's son at age 22, who was leading Company F, reflected on the approach, quote, It was terrible. However, not a man flinched. While men fell all around me, a shell would explode and clear a space of 20 feet in the ranks, but our men would close it up again. The ramparts flashed with fire and all the large shotted guns roared with defiance. As he crested the flaming paparit, paparit, the flaming ramparts, Colonel Shaw waved his sword over his head, bellowing, Onward, 54th! Onward! Forward, 54th! Before pitching headfirst into the sand with three fatal gunshot wounds to the upper body. As the 54th were battered in front, the forces of Colonel Strong and Colonel John L. Chatfield of the 9th Confederate, or the 9th Confederate, the 9th Con- I'm getting excited, man. I'm getting, my blood is boiling. Uh, (laughs) Colonel John Chatfield of the 9th Connecticut joined the fray. Meanwhile, soldiers of the 48th New York succeeded in following the Connecticut forces up the slope of the southeast part of the fort, but were unable to get very far. They got pinned down as well. So what, what was happening was the 54th were, were, were tasked with charging the fort in a frontal assault, the, the front area of the fort. The other units, the, the New York units and the Confederate units were supposed to charge up the south, the uh, southeastern portion. They're stacked behind each other. So what they hoped for was that the first wave would crest the, the ramparts and create a gap. In that gap, the, the, the trailing battalions could flood that gap and force their way into the fort. Didn't work out that way. Troops from the 3rd New Hampshire and 76th Pennsylvania and also the 9th Maine were halted by a deadly flanking fire from three Confederate howitzers. The howitzers spewed a deadly hail of canister and grape shot. So canister was like you packed a whole bunch of small projectiles into a larger projectile, and then when you shot it, it was like it was like a buckshot of a shotgun, right? You shoot buckshot out, the shrapnel sprays everywhere. That's exactly what grape shot and canister is. As the 100th New York Regiment approached the fort, they mistakenly fired onto the ramparts, which effectively trapped several federal regiments in the middle of two sides of gunfire. Without any reinforcements, Major Lewis Butler began the evacuation of federal forces. He was he was commanding the uh, the federal uh, the Union some of the Union gunboats. And he started evacuating, evacuating. By 10.30 p- by 10:30 p.m., the fight for Fort Wagner was over. The Confederates held the fort. The battle, however, showed the determination, courage, and fighting prowess of African Americans in the Union Army with the brave frontal assault. For their valor, numerous soldiers, such as Sergeant William Carney, who we're going to talk about later this month, he won the first Medal of Honor for any African American soldier in the Union Army. What he did was he made sure that their flag stayed aloft. The flag bearer was killed. He refused to let the flag touch the ground. He fought his way to the flag, killing a bunch of Confederate soldiers, held it aloft, waved it over his head and said, onward to me. His troops surged forward. However, they're eventually repulsed. Now, let's talk about some of the campaigns after Fort Wagner, because remember, this is the point where glory ends. So at this point, the movie is over. Like, okay. The movie's over. The 54th is done. In February of 1864, the 54th fought at the Battle of 
Olsti in Florida. The 54th was tasked with covering the retreating Union troops escaping to Jacksonville, Florida after an intense losing battle. The 54th and the 35th United States Colored Troops, they repulsed the Confederate advance. The 54th Massachusetts fought up until mid-1865 at the Battle of Boykins Mill in South Carolina. The 54th engaged the highly outnumbered Confederate troops in a successful attack that left only two killed and 13 wounded. One of the men killed was First Lieutenant E.L. Stevens, who was the last Union officer to be killed in the Civil War. Boykins Mill is also noted as being the last battle in South Carolina and one of the final battles of the war. Following the war, the 54th Massachusetts was mustered out of service on August 20th, 1865 in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, a fitting place to end their legendary career in the place where they first started it, South Carolina. Man, that was a great, um, a great learning experience for me. Researching and studying the 54th, I really enjoyed giving it to you guys, um, giving you guys the facts that I put together. Um, I really hope that everyone checks out the movie Glory. As I pointed out in the beginning, it was not a perfect movie, but they did an amazing job bringing that era, that era to life and really giving credit to some of the pioneers that paved the way for African-American soldiers in later wars. Whoever says, if you're black, right, and you're a veteran or you're serving the military, whoever tells you, if anyone, whoever says that black people shouldn't fight for their country, all right, and should not serve, tell them to uh, refer to the 54th Massachusetts. They're fighting for something bigger than them. Freedom is not just for white the white man. Freedom is for everyone, and these black folks were fighting to crush the stereotypes, the discrimination, and the racism that proclaimed that they were unequal, not only as humans, not only as men, but as soldiers also. So they couldn't do anything on the same level as the white man, and they proved them wrong. They proved, proved all the haters, all the naysayers wrong. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate everyone. Remember, turn on your post notifications. We're going to have a epic four-part series on the Black Panthers coming soon. It's going to be controversial, but it's going to be fire. God bless you guys. Have a great weekend. Be safe out there. It's really chilly. A lot of areas in the country, so remain safe. If you can, stay in the house. Don't drive too much. God bless you all. Put God and your family first. Get after it. Work hard. Stay positive. Never let anyone tell you that you can't do something. Ape. I got, I got, I got, I got loyalty, got royalty inside my DNA. Quarter piece, got war and peace inside my DNA. I got power, poison, yeah. pain, and joy inside my DNA. I got DNA by Kendrick Lamar. Flow inside my DNA. I was born like this, it's born like this. Fighting was in the 54th like DNA. Like this song is perfect. I don't contemplate, I meditate. Then off your, off your head. This that put the kiss to bed. This that I got, I got, I got, I got realness. I just kill shit cause it's in my DNA. I got millions, I got riches building in my DNA. I got dark, I got Ape evil that out. rot inside my DNA. I got off, I got trouble, some heart inside my DNA. I just win again, then win again like Wimbledon I serve. Yeah, that.